0: We like to bring you some weird comics history every single week through the Weird Science DC Comics dot com podcast feed. Uh, this is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, other things that I've never heard of, other things I don't know how to use. Um, if you're subscribed to Weird Science, DC Comics dot com podcast, this will show up in your feed where we show up every week on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um We've been talking about the Comics Code and, and the things building up to the Comics Code. In fact, we haven't even talked about the Comics Code yet, have we, Chris? Not,
1: ju- not just yet. Yeah, we're, uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're setting that table. It's a, it's a Thanksgiving
0: dinner here. Oh, yeah. It's been, it's been quite a banquet. So uh, why don't you catch us up on what we've talked about so far?
1: Yeah, we uh, we talked about how uh, comics have changed from being, you know, the patriotic, jingoistic type of almost uh, youth propaganda yeah. uh, to a more cynical and explicit type after World War II with all the uh, folks coming back from the war. Mm. Um, all the social conditions after the war that contributed to a uh, rise in juvenile delinquency, like, uh, you know, it's the rise of the latchkey kid where uh, mom was at work or sometimes the dad didn't come home. And this is also where the uh, suburbs started to flourish. So there was... a uh, they were different urban lifestyles.
0: Yeah, um, and a lot of and, idle time for kids. All of a sudden, you know.
1: Yep, they they don't have to go work in the factories anymore. <laughs> they uh, they got to uh, they got to slip back their hair and put on the other jackets and uh, go to town. Um, we also met Doctor Fred- Frederick Wortham. Uh, we talked about him uh, both uh, for the for the past two weeks. Yeah, and uh, he was a respected psychologist. He wrote Seduction of the Innocent. And that was written to combat uh, the violent crime comics. Yep. And uh, moving forward here, now we uh, we talked a little bit about the early uh, the early anti-comic zealots last week, but uh, we also have uh, the uh, the religious organizations. Uh, we've got some Catholic organizations here that uh, were they were doing comic book burnings. Yeah. And,
0: uh, and that's, I, you uh, know, in some in some areas, this was uh, high entertainment. You know, in the, <laughs> sure. in the early days before, you know, a lot of television and uh, everything, you know, it was just come and come and make a big bonfire at the church. Uh, sure, I'll be <laughs> there, you know, and, and there's always these, you can find these online always like press images of kids gleefully chucking their, uh, you know, comics into the fire. But I always take it like you could, you know, as a little kid, you can get them to throw anything into a fire. You know yeah. the joy of fire is you know what I mean. It's it's worth almost any sacrifice. I'll chuck I'll chuck my favorite book into the fire if it means sure. I'll keep it going a little longer. I'll chuck my little brother in there.
1: So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not only were they doing uh, the burnings, they were doing they they were doing things where you know you trade your comics and you get a Bible, but uh, you know those <laughs> those don't come those don't bring with it the uh, the, the wonderful flames. No. so uh,
0: those weren't nearly as popular. No, the kids didn't like that one as much. No, no. And
1: then we also, uh, this is, you know, the mid-50s, we got, you know, the, uh, was it the Red Menace here? We got uh, yep. Joe McCarthy going, was he going door to door? I remember hearing that he would go door to door.
0: Oh, yeah? I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe. It's, maybe his people would.
1: <laughs> could be, could be, yeah. Uh... Yeah, he uh, gave a speech on February ninth, nineteen fifty, to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, and in it he said, "I have here a list of two hundred and five card-carrying communists working for the state government," which did wonders for uh, for uh, for paranoia and
0: uh, and blacklisting. Oh yeah, I mean this this in a way is the moment that kicked off the fifties as we know it. Uh, you know, yes. with a lot of. Uh, Moralizing and you know, very strict cultural sense, and uh, people really started to clamp down. This really kicked it off and kind of opened the possibility for things like the Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency that we're going to get into very shortly. Uh, so, but you know, that you know, we could go on and on obviously about Senator Joe McCarthy, but that's not what kind of show we do. That's a, This is a comic show, folks, not a. Uh, American history show.
2: Yeah,
1: because it's easy to get it's easy to get that all mixed up just with the with the era we're talking about. But you know, he may have brought with him the uh, the fervor and the tone, but he doesn't have anything to do with this.
0: No, no, he 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 was not part of this uh, crusade against comics. And as far as I know, I can't think of any. I didn't find any comments about comics that he made. So he had bigger fish to fry. After all, (laughs) he had all he had all those communists in the state government to take care of. Yes. (laughs) So uh, now we're going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, We're going to talk about what, you know, the event, what I think was the galvanizing event that really led directly to the hearings. Um, But first we're going to have to talk about EC Comics again. We talked about it last episode. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was the one started by Max Gaines, and then he died in 47, left it to his son Bill. And Bill's the one that turned it into, uh, with his new trend comics, he was making horror and sci-fi and some crime comics. And these were the most popular ones in the stands. And we're going to hear a little bit from him later on also. Uh, So in 1952 there was a guy working who did mainly war comics at uh, EC. He did Two Fisted Tales among other ones. His name was Harvey Kurtzman and he wanted to do a humor comic. So in 1952 they started up a comic you may have heard of called Mad Magazine, but it didn't look the way we see it today or even have seen it for the last... You know, uh, long time, sixty yeah. years or something. Now, um, it was a comic book. It was an anthology comic book. A lot of parodies and satires. Uh, the first three issues were at a loss, but the fourth issue exploded. Uh, you know, it was. I think it sold thirty thousand copies on its first day. Was the wow. uh, figure that I saw, which was tremendous, especially for a, a comedy comic and not a horror or a romance comic. Uh, most likely because uh, of this Kurt, uh, this Harvey Kurtzman, Wally Wood parody Super Duper Man, which is one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. It's it's total visual candy. I recommend anyone take a look for it. They are they did reprint these uh, years ago. You can get them in hardbound for way too much money. Um, <laughs> but Gaines's right hand man, really his editor in chief, was a guy named Al Feldstein. Al Feldstein essentially wrote everything. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman did some more comics and Mad. Al Feldstein did. Everything else, he was the Stanley of his of his era, mm-hmm. uh, and overwrote. As a matter of fact, he was very he was very jealous of Harvey Kurtzman though, because Mad Magazine was a runaway hit, and meanwhile, Al Feldstein's still working on, you know, weird science and mm-hmm. science suspense stories. So he he talked to his buddy Bill, and agreed that in 1954 they would found a comic called Panic Magazine, which was a Direct ripoff of Mad Magazine made by the same publisher. I find that hysterical. Although, yes, as we talked about last uh, last episode, Lev Gleason did the same thing with Crime Does Not Pay, and then he had a comic, Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, like you say, if the market can support it. Uh, but by this time, already Mad had had many imitators, so I think Bill Gaines was like, you know, if everyone else is going to imitate Mad, I'm going to take my hand at it too. Sure. Uh, This was published under Gaines' lesser-used Tiny Toy Imprint. Actually, it's Tiny Tot. I wrote it wrong here. Uh, Hmm. The Tiny Tot Imprint, which wasn't really... Everyone knew it was EC. It wasn't, like, a big secret. Um, This has also been reprinted. There's a Dark Horse reprint. You can also find older reprints from the 90s. And as Chris found out, you can actually find this entire comic online, uh, Mm -hmm. issue number one, as part of the uh, Senate investigation into it. Um, I had it as a kid, and it's just not as funny as Mad. It's got a lot of the same people drawing for it, but Al Feldstein simply does not have the same comic sensibilities. Uh, there are parodies of This Is Your Life and a Mickey Spillane novel in there. You know, just, just not great. But one of the things it does have mm-hmm. is, is a straight retelling of Clement Moore's A Night Before Christmas with visual embellishments by Bill Elder. And this is the thing... That kicked off the the uh, Senate committee hearings, uh, which is amazing to me. You know,
1: yeah, it woke up the uh, the sleeping religious beast.
0: It, it, but it's it's uh, you know after all these horror comics and crime <laughs> comics and you know people getting shot in the street. I mean, as I talked about last last episode, you look at some of these comics from the from the mid '50s, and uh, they weren't kidding. There's a lot of gore. No. There's a lot of gore in these comics. Yeah, it gets yeah. pretty pretty raunchy. But here's The Night Before Christmas. Uh, Basically, it's a goof. It's like a Tex Avery cartoon. Yeah. Uh, So this is what did it. It got it banned in the state of Massachusetts. That's insane. Yeah. On uh, December 18th, 1954, the Governor's Council of Massachusetts called for a statewide ban of panic number one on the grounds that it desecrated Christmas and depicted the holiday in a pagan manner, which... I did it. Was that against the law? I didn't know that. You know, like what? <laughs> this must be. This is. This is a law, obviously on the books since the seventeenth century. I have a feeling. You know, this is straight from, yeah. the, from the Puritans. Um, this is. This is a funny. Bill Gaines responds by pulling the comic from distribution in Massachusetts, which is an empty gesture in itself. It's just been banned, yeah. and he pulled picture stories from the Bible, negle- <laughs> neglecting to mention it hadn't been produced in five years. He had stopped That's producing it. That, that was a, a hangover from his dad's time. And on December 28th uh, of uh, 1954, there were several employees, not Bill Gaines, not Al Feldstein, but other employees, uh, the guy managing the horror line at the time, whose name I didn't think to record here, they were arrested, uh, presumably on indecency charges. I couldn't find out what they were charged with, if anything. And they they were released on the same day, but this was uh, something in the wind, obviously.
1: Yeah, trying to let them know they meant business, try to shake them up a little bit. That's just... Insane.
0: Yeah, the fact, the fact. I mean, we're talking. You know, cops came in. They hand, you know, they handcuffed these guys. This wasn't. This wasn't a uh, come meet us down at the station for questioning. This was a public arrest, and I think it was. Yeah. Like you say, I think it was meant to shock them and show them that there could be some pushback against these, uh, you know, indecent pagan comics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because even if they, even if you know, charges weren't filed or anything, it's still a, it's still a pretty big inconvenience, and it doesn't look good to the public.
0: For sure, yeah. So, uh,
1: really, it really affects the tone and just how how it's received. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Moving forward, we got the uh, the, how will we pronouncing this this week?
0: Uh, well, we, we actually, you know, we last week I put that uh, snippet from Co- uh, file confidential where he introduced yes. himself. It's Key Favre.
1: Key father. That's uh, how we're gonna do.
0: It. We're gonna do it that way, folks. That's the way he says it. You know, I, in my mind, you know, I think Chris, Chris, and I both from New York. We, we have an, an inclination to say Kefava. Kefava. The if there was a street, if there was a street here, it would definitely be Kefava Street. Whether, oh, sure. We'll, we'll say keyfava
1: There we go. Because I watched his appearance on on What's My Line? Yeah. And there, there's four panelists on that show, and none of them said the name the same. Really?
0: Yeah, he, he was probably I, very used to it.
1: I'm sure. Um, now, before we go into the hearings, let's let's meet the man himself. Now, he's a he was a senator, a Democratic senator from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He was born July 26, 1903, in, in Madisonville, Tennessee. He attended Yale Law School. He graduated cum laude in uh, 1927. Practiced law in Chattanooga until 1939. Ran for Senate and lost in 1938, but then ran again in '39 and he won. Uh, he broke with uh, traditional, uh, like the Southern Democrats, in supporting uh, FDR's New Deal. Um, he uh, backed the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was founded in 1933 to provide relief to the area during the Depression, and uh, stopped uh, Senator Kenneth McKellar, who was another Democrat from Tennessee, from taking control of it.
0: Now, this TVA was was tremendously controversial for its time, especially throughout mm-hmm. the South, because it essentially... Uh, played kind of favorites to one area over others. You know, this, Tennessee was not, and Tennessee was not the only area getting relief, but I don't think there was a civil program as big as this in the country, maybe besides the entire Works Progress Administration, which essentially paved the entire country, more or less, you know, over those 10 years. So, but beyond that, you know, I mean, the Hoover Dam is the kind of thing that comes to mind as as big as this thing uh, Mm -hmm. was. And I think it's still around in some form. But oh I th- bet. this was a big deal and I, th- I think this definitely helped to put his you know name on the map uh, yeah among, this definitely among other things gave him a little bit into. of a spotlight yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, he introduced uh, antitrust measures in the 40s uh, he was on the House Select Committee of small on small business and uh, he was responsible for a few acts here he uh, he had the Keller uh, it's either the cello or the Keller Keith Keith. Kefava act uh-huh. which uh it uh, was in 1950 it killed loopholes in corporate buyout takeout situations he had two failed bids for the democratic presidential nomination which is insane to me because i'd never heard of this guy before <laughs> you know before we started doing this research you know you said uh you know kefauver that could have been the courthouse for I did. <laughs> you know uh he ran the first time in 1952 Which is, it's a crazy story because he beat the sitting president, Harry S. Truman, in the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. Uh, Truman was going to run for a third uh, term, but because this is right around the time that the 22nd Amendment uh, had hit, and it was only recently ratified, so it granted him a grandfather clause, so he could run for a third term, and he was going to.
0: And technically, he could still be president to this day if he wanted to, right? At that point, yeah,
1: sure. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, when he was beaten, I guess, fairly soundly by uh, Kefauver, uh, he... uh, dropped out. He withdrew his candidacy. Yeah. And uh, he uh, also, Kefauver also won the big states. He won New York, California, and Illinois. But he still lost the bid to Adlai Stevenson. And then Adlai would go on and he'd lose the election to Eisenhower.
0: Yeah, more famously than this uh, primary stuff.
1: Yes. <laughs> and then uh, in the next the next presidential election, 1956, he ran again, didn't do as well. And again, he lost a nod to Stevenson, who again lost to Ike. Um, he was actually on the presidential ticket as Stevenson's running mate, the the vice president. Wow. And uh, this was... Uh, a time where the uh, DNC could vote and choose vote upon and choose the running mate, so Stevenson wanted JFK, but the DNC actually chose key Yeah, and,
0: uh, which still happens today. You know, I mean, choose. essentially these guys they don't choose their running mates uh, or or women as the cases. Um, yeah, you know, it's totally installed. They totally treat it like a. Appealing to different demographics around the country, it's a calculated move, and you know it's that's often it. um, and sometimes it's a, it's a patronage move. But that's a that's for another podcast entirely.
1: Yeah, um, it almost feels like they were setting
0: up uh,
1: Adley and uh, and and Estes here for the loss. It's, it's like it, they had bigger plans for JFK.
0: It's quite possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think they might have seen the writing on the wall that nobody they had was going to beat Ike, so why not just throw no. these two. Uh, Affable gentlemen's yeah. out there, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, JFK can take it the next time. Exactly, and he, and he did, but, you know... And he that's, did. You go, that's for your high school history class, folks. Sure. Um, Kefauver's main concern right around now was taking down the mob. You know, he started doing a lot of antitrust legislation, and I think that led to a scrutiny of uh, criminal organizations. Um, mm-hmm. So he turned his eye to Frank Costello and the Genovese crime family, uh, most of the five, fa- five families did have their own comics and printing interests. And this is interesting because this is the first time that we know of that Kefauver kind of rubs up against the comics industry. Uh, yeah. he's a, he finds out that Harry Donenfeld, who a lot of us know is the co-owner of National Publications, which would become DC, and Jack Leibowitz, who is the co-owner and accountant of National Publications, they bought out Max Gaines, who owned All-American Comics. And we discussed this uh, last episode when we talked about E.C., Um, and this is what what wound them got them Wonder Woman and uh, Green Lantern Lantern, and and a handful of others, probably Sandman, the original Sandman I think so, a lot of the Justice Society Yeah, so uh, Leibowitz was a mob accountant and he was using comics distribution as a means to launder money, but this is the part I like better Donenfeld, he wanted access to the printing press in order to print pornography using Mm -hmm. comics as a cover and this is something I actually heard years and years ago, was that the reason comics were invented I, I do know this, I, Chris knows this, I don't know if the if the listener knows this, but I work in the print industry. Uh, and I, I do know and I can say for a fact that the only way offset web printing, which is the big rolls of paper, you see, that get fed into the rollers, the only way that that is profitable is if it runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They shut it off one week a year for maintenance, but if you if you keep starting and stopping a machine like that, it, you, you're not going to make any money. So. Uh, in order to cover the third shift which would have been the evening shift of making uh, pornograf- pornographic comics and one day I do hope to tell you all about the wonderful pornographic comics that were made <laughs> in America throughout the uh, 30s into the even up into the current day actually um, let's just say that they were you know illegal comics that you know you weren't allowed to make them but all the first two shifts they would be handled by penny savers and comic books and Whatever other innocuous stuff they could get, um, so I, I just found that very interesting. That you know, here we go. Oh, yeah. The 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 guy that runs DC, basically in a sense, Superman exists, so he could make a Tijuana Bible <laughs> about uh, you know Mae West or you know having sex with somebody. Sure. Uh, and they these guys, both these guys, Leibowitz and Donofrio, were well acquainted with Frank Costello, um, so you know there was some hanky panky here. Also, it's well known that for. Uh, up until the direct market days, you know, comics distribution, news, newspaper distribution, that was all handled by the mafia. These are the Teamsters that people talk about, the the, yeah. the truckers that used to, you know, uh, rule the roads. This is all this is all mafia-controlled organization. So this wasn't uh, that unusual. You know, illegal, sure, but you know, it's the, the price of doing business in at the time and today. Um, sure. Anyway, th- this scrutiny of Frank Costello led to the first ever televised hearings in May 1951 in Washington, D.C. This is like not a lot of people have televisions, and the ones that they have look like shit. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen them. They're like postage stamp-sized screens, and you got to like <laughs> squint and close one eye to see what's going on. But this was, this was uh, entertainment for the time. These hearings lasted 15 months crazy Uh, unbelievable i mean you know like wow (laughs) over a year of this of of c-span basically yeah uh more than 600 witnesses gave testimony it was shown live throughout 20 cities in the east and the midwest sales of television sets doubled during the trial so i think they basically doubled from 20 a year to 40 a year i mean really at that time (laughs) but but the estimated views between 20 and 30 million people uh, which is a pretty, <laughs> wide, a pretty wide wide gap, gang. as Chris points out. And he, like, he says, uh, this podcast is currently being listened to between 25 and 10,000 people, which yes. is good. And we appreciate every one of you. And it's honest. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're not fitting here, folks. So the Frank Costello case, he was born uh, January 26, 1891, as Francesco Castiglia. Wonderful! Uh, I think I did pretty well with that. That wow, was great. <laughs> Costello took over a high-ranking crime syndicate previously run by Lucky Luciano. Uh, by the way, you can find out all about these guys in the uh, comic Crime Does Not Pay. I don't know if, <laughs> 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 if that's a good crossover for you, but I, I, know I, read, I know I read about Lucky in there. The hearings were from January to March 1951. They, they aired, or this is when they aired, on WPIX yeah. in New York. Uh, that's Channel Eleven to channel 11. Chris. Chris and I on March 13, Costello took the stand and he was forced to be a, be a subpoena. Uh, and this was this was the, the part people remember. Uh, Costello's attorney insisted that none, the TV cameras could not show his face; they could only show his hands. So mm-hmm. while he was being asked questions, he he skirted a lot of questions and he talked a lot of tough talk. But he definitely sounded anxious, and the entire time, his hands were <laughs> ringing you yep. know, he was wor- worrying his hands and like kind of like fidgeting. Uh, this helped to condemn him in the minds of the public more than anything else. Yeah, real um,
1: bad impression management.
0: <laughs> absolutely, but but you got to think like uh, he didn't think that people were going to be looking just at his hands. Exactly. You know? Probably, if you took if you took in the entire scene at the courtroom, you know, he looked like a normal kind of nervous witness. You know, a lot of sure. a lot of people in that box they kind of get a little fidgety. You know, I could I could see. But by focusing on his hands, he just looked. He just seemed guilty, like he was trying to hide something. I think he actually ends up. He's even like tearing up a little piece of paper at one point. I uh, could definitely see that. Which is, which is like, you know, he's just the lawyer. I mean, nowadays the lawyer would be like, you know, don't, <laughs> do not move your hands a one inch. But you know, the lawyer would have been ahead of his time to mention something about it. Yeah. Uh, when he when he asked what he'd done for his country, he replied, "Paid my taxes." Which actually got a laugh, uh, yeah well, it, it was you know he was uh, he was definitely a character and I, and I think I, to be honest there were there was definitely a contingent of people I think that looked at him as an antihero you know what I mean yeah. he was sort of taking down the uh, the big the man bu- the big man yeah he eventually walked out on the hearings so he would yep. he would die of a heart attack on February 18th 1973 but he, he was uh, convicted but well, didn't he serve yeah. some time yeah.
1: He did, and he was. Uh, and he was. There was an attempted assassination on him that actually, it was. He was. He had a gun held up to his head, but when they pulled the trigger, it only took the bottom of his ear off. Wow. <laughs> was, uh, he had a. He he had a somewhat interesting
0: life. Yeah, this uh, this sounds like another <laughs> another guy that deserves. Anybody want to do the mafioso podcast? Or we'll give it a listen. <laughs> Definitely interesting, but but this made Kefauver a national celebrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, you got to think about it. The first. Of his kind as a senator, you know there had been popular senators. Uh, I'm I'm probably going to go on too long right now thinking about this, but <laughs> we're we're coming out of a time in American history where most people in America did not know what their president looked like. Yep. Okay. Uh, if they didn't get a newspaper, if that news, you know, before photography and then before decent photography, if you didn't get the newspaper, if you didn't see him give a speech at you know at, at in location person in or, person. Yep. You didn't know what this guy looked like and you know and and forget about knowing you might your senator much less the senator from another state you know but sure. he, but here it is the senator from tennessee is now a household name and they probably are saying it many different ways you know Keith albert, <laughs> Keith albert, Keith albert, <laughs> Keith albert. but you know they, they all know who this is uh he'd established himself as a crusading crime buster and an opponent of political corruption uh definitely a guy that was Looking to take down the the system, so he he Mm -hmm. played into that, Uh, and through his celebrity later on, he did appear on What's My Line, and played a bit part in Humphrey Bogart the film The uh, The Enforcer. So I think this is a little bit of a stunted Kardashian, maybe you know, before the time, maybe he was you know born too soon for reality television.
1: (laughs) And he never showed his nipple or anything. So. No,
0: that was the other thing. <laughs> you know, He had some standards. <laughs> he should have done it. He should have. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, we're going to go into, uh, well, the, our trial, the trial we care about.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> Three days in 1954. Now, this is uh, the United States Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency created by a motion of Senator Robert Hendrickson, the Republican from New Jersey, in nineteen fifty three in order to investigate juvenile delinquency. So I mean this isn't a, this isn't just a like we were saying before, this isn't just a witch hunt on comics. This is more about finding direct causality to juvenile delinquency yeah, by e- way of comics.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well you know the the comic scrutiny was interesting and and I don't know if we can ever know now, but I wonder how much of that was connected to Kefauver having unearthed all that stuff about Don, you know Donenfeld and Liebowitz oh, yeah. and, and sort of making a leap. Also, but also you know as we've been talking about, there was an anti-comics crusade. Massachusetts mm-hmm. had just banned a comic. Wortham yep. had just published a book uh, decrying comics. So this was something on the minds of a lot of Americans uh, that wanted to look into this. But they did lo- look into other aspects of you know other contra- contributing media. factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. To, juvenile delinquency eventually.
1: Yeah, now, uh, the, the first day of this trial was Wednesday, April 21st, 1954, and the first man to take the stand was a fellow by the name of Richard Clenenden. He was the executive director of the U.S. Senate Subcommittee to Investigate Juvenile Delinquency. And uh, he started by emphasizing that this trial is not an attack on freedom of the, freedom of the press, which is, a, I guess, is a good way to start it.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this was this was essentially the the big worry was is censorship coming censorship. in? Yeah, yeah.
1: he uh, he was quoted as saying the increase in craven crime committed by young Americans is rising at a frightening pace, and uh, he claims to have received a lot of mail from parents in regard to the detrimental influence certain types of crime and horror comic books have upon their children, and uh, they also this is also this is a big table setting moment here. This is you know the guy who sure is kind of.
0: Moderating, I suppose. Sort of opening uh, opening statements. Opening in a statements. Way,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, they provided some statistics. Uh, between seventy-five million and a hundred million comics sold every single month. Wow, and that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and twenty-five uh, percent of those are. I, I think if they gave them away for free now, you wouldn't get that. I don't think
0: so. No, <laughs> I mean, jeez.
1: Twenty-five percent of those are crime and horror. And uh, Kefava gave an estimate of plus or minus 20 million of them. Of that bunch, are crime and horror. Yeah. And uh, they gave us Exhibit One, which is a letter from R. H. Felix, M. D. He's the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, and uh, really starts things off with a uh, with kind of a dud, um, as far as their narratives concerned. Mm-hmm. He is quoted as saying, it is not my feeling that the solution to delinquency or emotional disturbances in children is to be found in the banning or elimination of comic books. Now here, you get this. Rather, I feel that the parents do have a responsibility for remaining alert to the kinds of reading material and viewing material, including the comics, being utilized by their children.
0: Well, is that so? How
1: about that? Interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, you
1: figure they, they probably had this uh, this Exhibit A, and uh, it's like, oh, this is a doctor. He's going to be on our side.
0: Yeah, and he was like, no, no, it's, you know... It's, wonk, wonk, wonk. I mean, you know, I, mean, it's, I don't know if he would get into this, but, you know, obviously the biggest contributing factor to juvenile delinquency was... You know the lack of parental supervision, which it was. Things had changed, and he was definitely alluding to that. But you know, I think it's important that they open with this because, seeing where it goes later, um, this kind of makes it look like we've all come upon this amazing (laughs) conclusion together. You know, like despite (laughs) our despite our best efforts, we found (laughs) out that comics are evil. But anyway,
1: yeah, they they didn't they didn't take into account that you know that whole you know the cat's away thing. Yeah. Uh, exhibit two was a study of uh, 1,313 gangs in Chicago. What
0: a, what a weird number of gangs! 1313. Yeah. Uh, was it done by? Was this done by a witch? Was this done on Friday the 13th under a full moon next to a black cat? Like it's such a weird. <laughs>
1: The monsters did it. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, when I read this in the uh, when I read this in the transcription, I didn't know if it was one gang called the Thirteen Thirteen, <laughs> or if it was actually. Oh <laughs> no! That. Yeah. Now, the the uh, findings of this argued that comics did influence their, these groups in their violent and uh, antisocial behavior. Um, now, what follows are several anecdotal pieces of evidence that either strengthen or weaken the argument for banning comics. And uh, mostly four. But uh, they, we also go into a... Uh, <laughs> Bill Gaines is making himself a real thorn in the side of this whole, yep. this whole endeavor. He wrote a, a satirical story. Um, it's called Are You a Red Dupe? And it's a story of a, of a character named Melvin Blitzunken, Skizavitsky. <laughs> I think it's Skovitsky. Skovitsky. Yeah, let's yeah. go with that. Who's a uh, Soviet Russian comic printer? Now the Soviets, the Soviets didn't believe they were smart enough to decide what kind of entertainment they wanted. So uh, at the end of his story, they just they all got together and destroyed Mel's printing press, and. Uh, he's quoted as saying the, the the story is quoted as saying uh, so the next time some joker gets up at a PTA meeting or starts jabbering about the nasty comic books at your local candy store give him the once over. We're not saying he's a communist. He might be innocent of the whole thing. He may be a dupe. Hey, he may not even read the Daily Worker. It's just that he swallowed the red bait. Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> that did not endear him to the
0: Senate floor.
1: Uh, no. At all. <laughs> and uh and he's gonna be taking the stand soon so this is a
0: uh, yeah real soon. pretty interesting I, I, yeah. think, I think this was definitely meant to set that up for uh, the, the people in attendance yeah um, but you know I gotta say I've read it it's it's pretty funny stuff sure uh, these guys these guys uh, they definitely had a great sense of humor about them and I love their crazy Yiddish Slovakian <laughs> names you know there's the, the, all kinds of words come out of mad magazine like for Schlugeter and uh yes. Raby and whatever I don't even know yeah um, <laughs> Dr. Harris Peck uh, was next up, director of the Bureau of Mental Health Services in ch- at Children's Court. Uh, I guess this is where children go to court. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I,
1: kid- I think it might be about their, uh, uh, maybe it's like a custody type thing. Probably. I,
0: I think it's, May, I Maybe someone. Juvenile court and probably hmm. some custody stuff, wherever, wherever kids get involved. Uh, anyway, it you doesn't know. matter, because he, he wasn't convinced one way or the other. It wouldn't go on the record, and he went home. Yeah. Uh, next came up uh, Henry Edward Schultz. He was a general counsel for the Association of Comic Magazine Publishers. Uh, he talks about the first comics code, 1947 to 48, which we didn't really talk about because nothing really uh, no. was followed for that one. But I um, had a few points. and Sexy, wanton comics should not be published. Crime should not be depicted in a sympathetic light. Uh, there should be no sadistic torture. No vulgar, obscene language used. Uh, the slang should be at a minimum. Divorce should not be predict- depicted as humorous, glamorous, or alluring. And there should be no overt racism or anti religious attacks. Um, you know, this is at a time during segregation. You know what I mean? So, sure. what is overt racism at a time when, <laughs> when you're not allowed to be at the same school as a, as a black person? Sure. Uh, only about a dozen publishers abided by it, including Lev Gleason Publications. Uh, incorporated Hillman Periodicals and Famous Funnies, Incorporated. Like I said, Lev Gleason did see himself as a crusader in mm-hmm. last issue and, and felt that his crime, his true crime comics, were instructive in keeping kids away from crime, which uh, yeah. is what we're debating right now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, several publishers left after a while because it was pretty useless. There was really nothing keeping people to doing this. You know, there was not yeah. really incentives, nor were, were there. Was there really a a body, an august body, to review such things? So, uh, cites Gluex at Harvard. Uh, he claims a child's pattern of delinquency is fixed at the age of six before the exposure to mass media. So... Uh, and we could
1: probably go on about that for a very long time because it's... I mean, right now there's a thing called the first five where they, uh, where they discuss the the brain formation and personality formation yeah. as occurring before you know the age of five, uh, where you know eighty five percent of your brain is wired by the time you're three. I mean it's still under a bit of scrutiny, but uh I believe California's running with it, so I mean there's a, it, it, it's, it's out
0: there. There, there there's something to it you know a lot of, even as you watch children grow up, you know uh, Chris and I are both of an age to now be able to be adults and see children actually grow up and things like this. And, you know, you see a lot of their personalities do seem to set before three or four. Yep. Um, there's also that, that aspect where sometimes kids can be practic- practically sociopathic as mm-hmm. toddlers and then just suddenly mellow out. You know, there, there's the brain is in an uh, excited state is what I'm trying to say at that time. You know, it's, yeah. it seems very... Uh, sponge, sponge-like, like it's the same thing. Why a kid can seem to pick out a curse word out of, you know, a paragraph. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you say a hundred <laughs> words, but you say shit. The kid, the kid will just repeat shit over and over, and, and who yep. knows what that's about. But he, even, even the general counsel for the Comics Magazine published Association, he agreed that the seal was pretty much meaningless. <laughs> yeah. So you know, he basically admitted that it was a, a exercise in nothing. And then yeah. taking the stand is uh, our hero, Dr. Frederick Wertham, <laughs> who uh, we have talked so much about him, I'm not going to go deep into it, but he basically recaps his book, Seduction of the Innocent, which we did a good chunk of last episode, yeah. and he, he briefly mentions the sex education debate in public schools, which I guess was a uh, hot-button hot thing yeah. Yeah, at, at the time, and he questions whether the st- teachers or the students should be conducting the lessons. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, times, like I say, the times were shifting around. Yes. Uh,
1: our next, uh, our next contestant is <laughs> Bill Gaines, the publisher of EC Comics, and this dude gets grilled. Mm-hmm. Um, not helping his cause any, he was taking diet pills at the time, uh, a lot of them, and uh, you know he was under a lot of pre- a lot of stress because you know people on his staff were just arrested. Yeah. Uh, so he he had a lot of stuff going through his head, and uh, we're going to be uh, playing a clip from his testimony later on uh, during our uh, during our big break yeah. and. Uh, There are some key quotes see he says i would like to discuss if you bear with me for a moment more something which dr wortham provoked me into dr wortham i'm happy to say i have just caught in a half truth and i'm very indignant about it he said there is a magazine now on the stands preaching racial intolerance the magazine he's referring to is my magazine what he said as much as as he said was true There do appear in this magazine such materials as Spick, Dirty Mexican, but Dr. Wortham did not tell you what the plot of the story was, and this was a story that appeared in Shock Suspense series, one of our favorite titles, Uh, number 14, which was covered dated April slash May 1954, and the story was called The Whipping, about a racist father beating his own daughter to death, mistaking her for her Latin boyfriend. And uh, that was written by Al Feldstein and drawn by Wally Wood.
0: Really, a stark story worth looking up. But but Bill Gaines continues.
1: Yes, he says uh, this is one of the ser- this is one of a series of stories designed to show the evils of race pre- prejudice and mob violence in this case against Mexican Catholics. Previous stories in the same magazine have dealt with anti-Semitism and anti-Negro feelings, evils and dope addiction, and development of juvenile delinquency. Uh, This is one of the most brilliantly written stories that I've ever had the pleasure to publish. I was very proud of it, and to find it being used in such a nefarious way made me quite angry. I'm sure Dr. Wortham can read, (laughs) and he must have read the story, to have counted what, uh, what he had counted.
0: Yep. And now we're going to bring you our first ever edition of Weird Comics History Theater, Mm -hmm. where I will be playing the role of Senator Kefauver and another guy who says two words later, and uh, Chris will be will be Bill Gates. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: no, let me get my let me let me just get into the role a little bit now. You know, I got a a, a senator from Tennessee in the fifties probably sounds something like this. Now here I say, here is your May (laughs) twenty-two issue. Uh, the, the issue in question is Crime Suspense Stories number 22, May 1954, which was the, he must have just bought it off the stands on the way into the building. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're talking about the most recent issue. And he says, uh, this seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that's in good taste?
1: Yes, sir, I do, for the, for the cover of H- Hover comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen with dripping blood from it and moving the body over a f- little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be
0: bloody. You have blood coming out her mouth. Uh, a little.
1: And, and at this point, Gaines didn't mention that he had cover artist Johnny Craig clean it up a little bit before uh, publication. Yeah,
0: literally all the things that he mentioned <laughs> that might have made it grosser are the things he asked Johnny Craig to remove. And, uh... Here is Blood on the Axe. I think most adults are shocked by that. Here is another one I want to show them. (laughs) This is the July one. And now he's looking at Crime Suspense Stories, number 23, June, July, 1954, cover date. It uh, it, uh, seems to be a man with a woman in a boat, and he's choking her to death with a crowbar. Is that in good taste? And I would end that scene. Uh, Then later on. (laughs) Senator Kefauber starts again. Mr. Gaines, I say, I had heard your father really did not have horror and crime comics. When he had the business, he printed things that were really funny and stories of the Bible. But you are the one that started out the crime and horror comics.
1: I didn't didn't start crime. I I started
0: horror. Now, who started crime? Uh, I really don't know. Anyway, you are the one who, after you took over your father's business in 1947... You started this sort of thing here. This is the May edition of Horror. Uh, this he's looking at Vault of Horror number thirty, April to May, 1953. I mean, he's not even saying the title. No. Here, here is a here is a comic horror. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, like yeah, here's here's crime. Exactly. You know, it would be like be holding up an issue with Spider Man and being like, "Here is a superhero comic." You know, here yes. whatever. Any any old one is the same as the other. Uh, just totally dismissive of uh, Bill Gaines. Definitely, definitely took him to be a bit of a uh, patsy and yeah. uh, you know, raked him over the coals a little. And it's interesting, because Bill Gaines actually volunteered to give this testimony. He, yeah. was, he was the only person that did that, and it was really a bad idea. <laughs> After this, we get some guys. Now, now these, uh, someday we will get to, like I've talked about before, the golden age of comics. but. Uh, one thing to say is in the golden age of comics, the dream by entering the comics industry was that one day you would get a comic strip, which was yeah. the only respectable form of comics at the time, plus quite lucrative if you could be sure. a, syndicated. flash syndicated or syndicated. Yeah. You know, a lot of these comics were making a lot of Mutt and Jeff and Barney Google. The, the comics strips were huge. Even into our youth, they were still pretty big, but that, that yeah. really will be another podcast talking about strips and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, But Walt Kelly, who did Pogo, Milton Kniff, who did, uh, I can't remember now, Rip Hunter, I think, uh, Joseph Musial of the National Cartoonist Society, Uh, they get up, they discuss National Cartoonist Society's internal code. They cannot draw obscene or horror stuff, and they bash EC artist Johnny Craig for a while, which is interesting. I'm not really sure what the beef was with him, particularly. (laughs) Um... He, he, you know, Craig is the, is the guy. When you look at these old EC comics, he's got a very bold, flat style. Yeah. Uh, not really, you know. When, when, when you think of a lot of these comics, you think of guys like Ed Wood or ghastly Graham Ingalls, who made these very like crowded, dark panels that were perfect for. Crime and horror. Johnny Craig's was sort of open. They almost looked like romance comics, but
1: <laughs> almost. He didn't. But sh- there's
0: blood dripping. Yeah, there. he d- he didn't shy away <laughs> from showing internal organs or what I actually I always liked whenever he showed someone being cut at the arm or at like, at the midsection. He would sort of so- show it like a spiral ham, you yeah, know, like a
1: cross section. <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: kind of like kinda like there was nothing else in it, just meat and a bone, and that was That's all there was. Uh, this uh, Johnny Craig would actually leave comics in embarrassment after this and find great success in advertising, which is not really surprising considering the uh, quality and the cleanness of his work. Sure. Um, exhibit 14 was uh, Comic Books Help Curb Delinquency, interesting, by Murray Ilson. And like the, uh, Murray said, like the Chinese who say one picture, this was, this was an article I assume, right? Yes. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Murray went to say, like the Chinese who say one picture is worth 10,000 words, I would like to add this to it. One comic artist supplies more cheer than ten thousand doctors, which is just a beautiful sentiment. Um, I, you know, going back to this national cartoonist stuff, though, talking about he can't, he, they can't draw obscene or horror stuff. Well, they're syndicated in newspapers, you know. Like, yeah. no kidding, you can't draw that shit. No. You know, that's like saying, oh well, I, you know, I would never, you know, talk about my pedophilia in my article for Time, New York Times. Uh, no kidding, buddy. You know what I mean. Like, gee, the restraint that they, these guys showed—you got to commend them. I do remember the very
1: uh, controversial and graphic. Uh, what was it? The Mamaduke Duke uh, neutering uh, strip.
0: Oh yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was brutal. That's right. He had to wear a cone for two weeks. It was crazy. <laughs> a long
1: time, and the, you know, they didn't even take the stitches out. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> now that
1: ends our first day yep. at the uh, at the courthouse, and. Uh, these guys, uh, you know, they packed the lunch, came back for day two. But, uh, <laughs> it was the very next day, Thursday, April twenty second, nineteen fifty four. And uh, first fellow to get on the uh, get on the stand is a fellow
0: by the name of Gunnar Dipwad. <laughs> That's the only way we can say. Who had a real axe to grind with the kids and all in, in his elementary school? I'm <laughs> sure
1: he. still got the locker box on his back, yeah. Uh, now he. Uh, he, he, he overcame his inferiority and became the executive director of child study for the Association of America. Um, now, he gets grilled, too, uh, because the, the place he works for, they have folks who consult for, uh, for DC Comics and also Fawcett Comics. Mm-hmm. And this is when we get our first look at the DC Comics internal comic code, which is Exhibit 21 uh, for the case here. Now, first one, Sex the inclusion of females in stories is specifically discouraged. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> now when they are included they should be drawn realistically. Okay, I mean, that I'm on board th- with. Th-
0: th- doesn't this kinda of remind you of a certain DC uh, edict not too long ago about no marriages allowed in the DC. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> maybe that's too much editorializing, but <laughs> Maybe.
1: <laughs> now, a language, no taking the Lord's name in vain. Heroes are not allowed to use slang. Now, slang can only be used by the crooks and the villains. Interesting. Yeah. Bloodshed, never show bleeding, and no dead bodies. I mean, th- this is very, this is definitely pre-DiDio, uh, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, now I think that never is replaced with always, and in, instead of no dead bodies, make sure somebody loses a limb in every yeah. issue.
1: <laughs> it's there will be death. And, uh, <laughs> See here, torture, item number four, torture, no chains, no whips, no motor cars, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, no sexual sadism. Uh, Step five here, uh, kidnapping, no, absolutely no kidnapping of children, and very limited kidnapping of women, as long as the story turns out the way it needs to turn out. Right. And uh, no implied sex um, during the kidnapping. Uh, Number six here, killing, heroes never kill. Uh, The villain can only die by their own machinations, so that the hero can never be proactive in in that Uh, Only police officers only the duly deputized are allowed to kill Mm -hmm. and uh, of special note here women are not allowed to use lethal weapons
0: Wow (laughs) Yes, because they Uh, don't know what they do with them the crazy That's it. They're gonna
1: gonna shoot their eye out.
0: Exactly (laughs) Uh,
1: And uh, last crime now, justice must triumph in every single case. Crime should be depicted as sordid and unpleasant. So you cannot make crime look like something that's alluring or uh, something that you should be encouraged sure. to do. Sure,
0: very glamorous. Well, like I said, in Crime Does Not Pay, sometimes they'd show these criminals living as multimillionaires for like a decade oh, or more, you know what I mean? It was like, this, this, uh, this looks great, you know? Why, why wouldn't yes. I do this?
1: I want chains and a cigar. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: Why wouldn't <laughs> I do that? <laughs>
1: Now uh, and then they revealed, uh, without going into really any detail, that there is a relationship between DC owners and the owners of a bad comic book publisher, and uh, we don't know if that means that gore or porn or or if this is a uh, reference to uh, the, uh, the the mafioso fellas we talked about earlier.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, given what we know now <laughs> about Donnenfeld and the uh, beginnings of National Publications, National yeah. Periodicals. Uh, I think it's quite possible that it was porn, and we, and we know for sure that uh, porn comics <coughs> were being made. Schuster w- w- drew *Knights of Terror* right not, yeah. not not far ago from here, so uh, no,
1: very very same same time span. Yeah. Right
0: in the same, like almost the same. I think it was '53, if I remember, Maybe I'm wrong though, but it could have been this very year. Um, could have been. So, you know, it, it's it's whatever it was, though, is there was still something happening on the third shift, I have a feeling, at that printing press. You know, it wasn't all Superman, Wonder Woman, and uh, the Western comics. Uh, now on the stand, we have William Friedman, former small-time horror comics publisher. He worked for Master Comics, which is a comics company I've never heard of uh he edited dark mysteries a comic i've never heard of (laughs) cannot seem to recall the more violent images he's questioned about calls out the proceedings interrupting counselor ticked off uh that a whipping boy is being made out of one particular facet of the means of information uh you know i i think it's interesting he says this because he's saying that comics are not just horror crime you know there's a lot that can happen with them um and we're gonna see that this is like a cry in the wild you know this is not this is not what this uh committee is being convened to find out that no. the the artistry and language of comics they just want to you know stop all the headlights and blood senators do not appear to be pleased with his contentious testimony and they seem to attempt to interrupt him with every breath uh then he, he leaves and dr laura bender psychiatrist working for dc comics she's worked at the bellevue hospital with children uh, almost certainly knew uh, dr Wortham, who was a a head doctor there received 150 a month from dc for being a board member uh on dc's you know whatever morals board committee, committee. yeah committee <laughs> uh that's a quite a bit of money in those days folks for 100, sure. 150 a month you know that that wouldn't necessarily i mean actually you you could live on that pretty well but it it uh you know that wasn't like millions but that, that's yeah. that's not a small amount of money to be getting in those days. Um, she defends DC, calls out the court For the, an overwhelming, for overwhelming broad statements That are made in regard to juvenile delinquency uh, Specifically mentions that Superman Is a good influence on children Calls out the court for being a little bit hard On Mr. Dipwad during his time on the stand <laughs> And claims that she would object To any truly horrifying imagery Used in DC comics um,
1: yeah, she, she almost took this as like A personal affront to the job That she's doing there because she's like, you know, obviously if it was something that was truly horrifying, I would, have, I would have told them about it.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think a lot of these uh, psychologists and psychiatrists were being bought for, to fabricate an opinion. But sure. it, it really seems like Dr. Laura Bender was seriously looking at these things and, and, yeah. and giving her true professional opinion on them. So I think it's interesting. I, I really wonder what Frederick Wertham's uh, answer to this was or if he had any, uh, hmm. any fallout from this. But I, we don't know anything about it. Uh, then there was on the stand, Monroe frolick Jr., business manager of Magazine Management Co. That was Marvel, uh, MMC. Well, MMC owned Atlas Magazines, which was Marvel or one of Marvel's guises in those days. Yeah. And he gave some stats. He said they do 15 teenage books, including Patsy Walker, nine war books, nine westerns, two anti-crime books. He called them. <laughs> uh, one of the one famous one was Police in Action, uh, which is actually. Pretty funny title (laughs) if you think about it. And eight weird or (laughs) sci-fi books. Uh, I would have to think Where Monsters Dwell was probably one of them. Uh, Marvel had a couple of good horror and sci-fi books in their day that I really dug. Um, He said there's a disparity between Mm -hmm. adult comics, subject matter, and ads aimed at children. Uh, Pimple Clean uh, is specifically mentioned. And I can say that looking through, uh, not from Atlas Comics, but from other comics publishers, some of these horror comics... They've got ads for like Naugahyde seat covers in your car, or or even or even low low interest loans, home loans for for mm-hmm. young couples. I mean, it really appears that some of these comics they were aimed towards people roughly in their you know early twenties. Yeah, uh, like engagement rings, all sorts of jewelry. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're true. They're a lot of jewelry, a lot of like women's like. Could buy a muff. I seem to remember seeing ads for this <laughs> like really really strange things that aren't really for kids. Although I got to say it's irrelevant because kids were getting their hands on these in by, sure. by the truckload you know what i mean like they, <laughs> didn't matter what the ads said the kids were definitely reading these and trading them uh Frohlich says that they changed the product in accordance to demand uh, which is you know unheard of they don't do that anymore folks <laughs> he cites a book called bible tales that only sold 80,000 copies making it a failure <laughs> Jesus <laughs> wow uh, maintains that nothing can be put on a comic book That would be detrimental to a child's development And he claims artists, writers, and publishers Hold no responsibility And he blames the occasional looser Art and writing on deadlines That are impending, which, you know, is a likely story We've heard that before
1: Sure uh, Next person on the stand is William Richter Who is a news de- from the News Dealers Association Of Greater New York Now he is a opponent of uh, Horror and crime con- comics And he seeks laws to ban them he seems to have a particular problem with uh, a old thorn in the side, Bill Gaines, and the uh, comic book Panic in particular. Which is, again, so
0: weird. Like, it's <laughs> such such not the comic that you think would be the uh, yeah. whipping whipping boy for this whole thing.
1: <laughs> and he didn't really like the way that Gaines reacted to having Panic. Or <laughs> <laughs> Gaines kind of saw it as a feather in his cap. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't too pleased with it. Um he comes off like he's got a real axe to grind on him. Uh, he cl- he claims that the satirical books like Panic are just as bad for children as the harm- horror and crime books. Now, uh, he uh, tried to monetize his, uh, <laughs> his <laughs> zealotry here by uh, starting the Long Island Stationery Association uh, i sorry, the Long Island Stationery Owners Association to combat distribution of such books. And uh, for the uh, for the low low price of two dollars a month, <laughs> you-, you could be a partner outlet.
0: Yeah, which. And, uh,
1: Really shows that he's a man of principle here, you know. Give me some money and uh and, and help me fight comics.
0: I don't mean, I don't really understand. So you pay him two dollars a month and also then you don't carry comics? You know what I mean? Yes, so so it's not, kinda... only do you, not only do you have to give him two dollars a month, you have to cut off a major revenue stream like, like hold on a second.
1: Who's That's in crazy. charge here? Okay, next up on the stand is a fellow by the name of Alex Siegel. He was the president of Strayvon Publications. Now, he he uses the hearing to advertise his company's books, his, his good books.
0: Now, I added um, something here I just thought was interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, this company actually published the Learn Self-Defense Karate. <laughs> yeah, a correspondence karate course offered in comic books in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, which you, I've I've you seen, must have seen that. We've uh, <laughs> I've hundreds seen hundreds times. Books. Yeah. <laughs> What is ninja? Exactly, <laughs> and that was uh, Those were written by uh, a fellow by the name of S. Henry Cho, a Korean Taekwondo pioneer who is credited uh, with bringing Asian martial arts to the Western world.
0: So I just wanted to throw that out there. That's not really relevant to this uh, hearing. But it's, it's fun. I just thought it was fun. <laughs> uh,
1: what a! Uh, it's it's revealed that Mr. Siegel also publishes books for adults called. Uh, Really good titles here. We got Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle Fifi. And the and,
0: Sexcapades.
1: Uh, how, do you, how do you put that on the stands in 1954? I don't
0: know, but I, you, know, you, you, you don't go buying a, band called, uh, a magazine called The Sexcapades and, and act like you didn't know what it was about. You know what I mean? It definitely is upfront with what they're going to give you.
1: You couldn't put that on the stands now. I don't
0: know. You, you'd have, you might have trouble.
1: Yeah. He, he claims that the book lines are kept separate, and... Uh, he really doesn't, he doesn't add a whole lot to the proceedings. He's basically just there to say, hey, you know, I've got good books. Yeah. Um, next up on the stand is a fellow by the name of Samuel Roth, who is a, a comics publisher who is currently serving a prison sentence, or at the time he was serving a prison sentence for uh, obscenity charges, and he comes down, he, he plops himself down, pleads the fifth,
0: gets up, and leaves. That's it. Back to prison with you, buddy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, next up we have uh, Helen Helen Maya and Matthew Murphy they're the uh, vice president and editor of Dell publications and they start off with the quote "Dell comics are good comics and they, and, were. Uh, <laughs> they were oh they were wonderful um, they reviews they refused to join the comic book Association because they were afraid that they were afraid of guilt by association they oh. didn't want to be lumped in with uh, crime comic publishers because it seemed like that whole association was made to to you know, assuage the guilt. So they uh, they didn't want to be in there and look like they were part of that. Yeah. Um, and they are quick to point out that Dell was not a part of any of this attack on comics, and in fact, Wortham doesn't mention them at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, these guys these guys did uh, kid comics, you know. Yeah. Um, Exclusively, right? Ex- pretty much, ex- I, yeah. to my knowledge, they had stuff like. Uh, God, I can't even think of all those. I mean, stupid little baby comics, literally. <laughs> like, like. <Yeah. laughs> uh, let me say, I got, a, I got a list of some right here. That I mean, it's comic doctor, doctor kill that came much later. Mm-hmm. Four Four Color was a famous one. That was basically like funny animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did other popular comics. So just really bland, forgettable comics, yeah. usually featuring very cherubic baby faced characters that were. Uh, I mean, to say that they were being good. There was, nothing, they, there was nothing wrong they could do. There was no conflict in their world to create yeah. any kind of, you know, badness. So, I'm sure, uh, I'm
1: sure they looked really good on the pediatrician's waiting room uh, table
0: there. And, you know, they weren't brought down here, and they, we haven't mentioned them, but Disney also never joined uh, the Comics Association, nor did they yeah. ever join the Comics Code Authority no. later on, because they had an internal code that was uh, much stricter legit. than any of it. Yeah. Totally legit. And, and also, again like what's Donald Duck is Donald Duck going to going <laughs> to kidnap Daisy Duck and like threaten to have sex with her and then get shot in a hell of bullets like it's not going to happen they're still not
1: wearing pants, though.
0: Hey, you got a point there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Dell folks go on to say that they absolutely abhor comic and, uh, I mean, horror and crime comics. And they even go as far as to censor the ads that run in their books. Yep. So they're really playing it, uh, playing it safe.
0: I'd love to see that. Instead of, instead of learned karate, it just says learn <laughs> and a black bar over it. Like, you don't know what. What am I learn
1: Learned redacted.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right in to find out <laughs> what you could learn. <laughs> uh, so that concludes day two. Now we go to our final day here in April. Uh, I'm no, sorry. Is, uh, in, now later. in June, this is two months later, uh, our final day of hearings. Friday, June 4th, 1954. Uh, is this still in New York? Do you know? Probably, right? Either New York or D.C. Yeah, I'm not it sure It would have which. to be one of the two. Um, first to take the stand is Honorable James A. Fitzpatrick. By the way, we're, we're saying stand They're actually just sitting at a table. This is this actually isn't like a. There's no judge presiding (laughs) over it. It's it's a bunch of people uh, sitting before somebody at a a table, really kind of uh, threateningly. I think I could see how you you would sit at that table feeling a little nervous, but you know, uh, that's that's government for you. Mm -hmm. So the Honorable James A. Fitzpatrick, Chairman of the New York State Joint Joint Legislative Committee to Study the Publication of Comics. That's a title. (laughs) Wow, what a committee. (laughs) Uh, he, fit, he needs four business cards to fit that. I mean, uh, now this this is just hysterical. He provides a panel by panel review of the band in Massachusetts comic panic number no. one. Again, it's such not worth a comic doing that for. You know, it's like if if, if it had been the average like shock suspense stories or you know uh, you know vault of horror, well I could see sure. that. But this is like you know, and here we come to a very stupid joke that no one really got at the time. And, you know. <laughs> Uh, he mentions a, a repeated disdain for readership which I think is it was all tongue in cheek you know and, yeah, and actually
1: the was, characters and they were just talking about how stupid the people reading the book were of,
0: of course yeah. yeah and and, and, and then that, that that was I mean you know Mad Magazine has a long history of, of self deprecating humor this is all part of the same thing it's, it's uh, just a type of humor that, they, that these guys weren't getting or willfully were ignoring uh, the police were yeah. made to look foolish in the comic which you know is just part of the gag and the uh, complete and utter perversion—a man dressed as a woman—that's in the first story, uh, yeah. the Mickey Spillane ripoff. Uh, again, you can look at this entire issue. Um, maybe if I we can get a—I'll put a link in the show notes
2: yeah, maybe. Uh, for
0: this, and you can and you guys can take a look at it. It's—you'll see that it's not worth this kind of uh, <laughs> scrutiny. scrutiny. Yeah, uh, and in this in that, that uh, night before Christmas that we talked about, that actually led to the comic being banned. Santa Claus is depicted as divorced. I don't really remember he's, that, but maybe. It. He's
1: got a bumper sticker on the back of his sleigh
0: that says recently that's divorced. That's right. That's right. Recently, <laughs> that's right. So, and that, that's instead of just married. See, it's, the gags yeah. keep coming, folks. Uh, <laughs> he claimed comics have been given a year to clean their own house, and now it's time for the feds to step in. And mm-hmm. thank you very much, James Fitzpatrick. Now, fuck off. We got <laughs> Get here. Benjamin Friedman, chairman of the board of News Deals Association of Greater New York and America. Uh, he discusses tie-in sales. Now, a tie-in sales uh, would be your distributor would say if you buy, um, you know, if you want to get Superman and the other big comics, well, then you got to take a, a assortment of these crummy horror and crime comics to back to backfill your order. Yeah. Um, which, to be honest, goes on today. Also, sure. you know, if you if you increase your order of, you know. Uh, Thor number one, by 30% of the last one, then you'll get blah, 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 blah. Um, And, and, you know, you don't mention it here, and it's not mentioned in the thing, but we've talked about it before on uh, Weird Comics History. that Under the newsstand uh, system, a lot of times uh, newsstand operators that didn't really give a shit about comics would just say, you know, give me Wonder Woman, give me Batman, and give me 80 of whatever. You yeah, know, just fill it in for Just me. fill it in and make it look full. If I don't sell it, I'm giving it back. But anyway, that that's that's not what, what uh, Benjamin Friedman said here. So uh, Benjamin Friedman said that news dealers were told they would not get a certain leading books if they did not buy other certain potentially non-desirable crime and horror books. but if they did not comply, they are threatened and harassed. There are hints at physical violence, um, which I don't think is probably too far off. Probably not. Uh, Then we have Harold Chamberlain, circulation director of Independent News Company. He said there are no tie-in sales, that that is a fib. He states that news dealers don't even display all the books they receive. They have no room to do so. And the books may have been shipped, and it does not mean there was any ultimatums or threats made Yeah, the dealer can... Display whatever they want, any way they want. You know, mm-hmm. this is being a little facetious here. You know, just sure.
1: He's speaking very broadly and
0: exactly simply. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's true. I bet if you went to a lot of newsstands, there were a lot of comics not being displayed. But again, this just went back to the fact that a lot of these guys didn't care. You know, what, what yeah. when one pocket's comics were emptied, they filled it with other comics. You know, whatever was laying around. So yeah, he, he's he's speaking very broadly here. That's, yeah. that's a good way to put it. Uh, he says that any cases of harassment would have have to come from an overzealous or a you know, mm-hmm. Routman, uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: very very strong Superman fan.
0: <laughs> uh, somebody, somebody that really believes in these in the business of uh, news distribution. Uh, he said there was no incentivization. All books are fully returnable.
1: Yeah, so there's no reason to keep one and not the other.
0: Exactly, um, but you know that's. Again, debatable. Uh, Especially because Charles Appel, the owner of the Angus drugstore, said, yeah, there's tie-in sales. And he always returns his horror and crime books without shelving them. And he never ran into any problems until, he says, the last shipment he received without TV Guide. And he says that, obviously, they were sending him a message. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Senator Kefauver was very happy to hear this, (laughs) that there was strong-arm tactics being used at the Angus drugstore. So, (laughs) you know, there was... A lot of hanky-panky going on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting how many people had already taken a personal stand against these comics. Um, yeah. You know, I can't help but think of uh, Stan Lee's story of when he wrote comics uh, when he was younger. And people would ask him what he did, and he would say he was a writer. And they'd say, oh, well, what do you write? And he'd say, well, I write uh, children's books. And they'd say, <laughs> what kind of children's books?" And eventually he would have to go around, because if, if to say you wrote comics in those days or you worked on comics... You might as well be working on, you know, pornography or, you know, like something horrible. Uh, (laughs) And and this is part of that public feeling was that um, some people would not... I mean, they're obviously in places today they won't carry uh, skin mags and stuff. So it's it's not so far off except that none of these, you know, any of these comics world nothing compared to the things you can see on the internet today, ladies and gentlemen. Sure, I can tell you definitely. right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have uh, George B. Davis, who's the president of Cable News Company. Uh, not CNN. This built spelled with a K.
2: It's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, he gives us some uh, publication stats. He's got one adventure book, three detective books, seven Westons, eight juvenile, uh, six love, three satire, two war, and ten weird. And uh, he uh, goes on and claims that there are no tie-in sales. He, he mentions that he agrees completely with, uh, with uh, the earlier testimony from Chamberlain. Um, he claims that, that he has no responsibility for any of the books distributed under his company. And uh, he says, uh, but he, he also suggests that comics have been left, he, he suggests that comics should be left to regulate themselves, basically. Um, he kind of rides the fence saying that it, uh, it has gone too far, but at the same time, he does not want the government involved. Okay. Which, I, you know, it's, uh, it's admirable, I suppose. But, uh, uh, you know, he, he appears ignorant to the whole thing. Uh, he, he just knows what's on the cover. He doesn't know anything about the inside of it. Um, and he also expresses a moderate amount of surprise when he's shown some of the gory insides of the books. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is just what the committee wanted to hear anyway, so they, they bid him adieu at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. You, you answered the question right. You can go home.
0: Yeah. Before you say anything else, we don't want to hear. Just get out of here. This, <laughs> yes. is one, this is one of my favorite guys right here.
1: Oh, the Honorable E.D. Fulton. He's next. He's from the House Commi- House Commons Canada. Now he passed a law banning crime comics in Canada. Now his contribution here. We gotta be clear. <laughs> this is not. This is so terrible. <laughs> This is—he is he's on the... Well, we we say on the stand, but we're gonna say that for familiarity. Here. Yeah. Uh, he, his his time on the stand is is referred to as a statement and not a testimony. Now the, the politicians love this guy. Yeah. And they, they pretty much verbally filate him the entire time he's there. <laughs> um, now get this, I say, I'm going to depart from our usual procedure here in your case. We have a we have been swearing in witnesses, but. We are not going to swear in a member of Canadian Parliament. You are one of us. Which so he is here's a guy.
0: That's on the...
1: <laughs> he is on the stand, not sworn in, can yeah. say whatever the hell he wants. Uh, now, they also say that we are grateful to you and we are grateful to Canada. Like, well,
0: what, what, for what? Like, what happened? You know what I mean? Like Was there some was something in the 50s we don't know about or the 40s? <laughs> Don't Canada know. was like supporting America for a while. I don't remember hearing hey, hey. about that.
1: <laughs> now uh, we we learned from him that there are uh, there were comics bootleggers. <laughs> Because uh, you couldn't get these books in Canada anymore, mm-hmm. so you had to get them somewhere. They uh, make mention of a location in Plattsburgh, New York, where Canadians would get their hot
0: horror books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Imagine crossing.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you go to, the, you go to the Niagara Falls. You know, you you uh, hang out, you eat an American hot dog, and you buy a bunch of Volta horror. That's something. Um, that's I where you get so. your kicks.
1: I mean, down here in Arizona, you know, there's a lot of people who go to Mexico for their prescription drugs.
0: There you go.
1: <laughs> and maybe when they're down there, they get some uh, books that are banned down in here. Yeah. Uh, now they changed the indecency. I'm sorry, the indecency laws to include crime comics. Now this is from subsection one of section two hundred seven of criminal code chapter thirty six. Now, they add prints, publishes, sells, or distributes any magazine, periodical, or book, which exclusively or substantially comprises matter, depicting pictorially the commission of crimes, real or fictitious, hereby tending, thereby tending or likely to induce or influence youthful persons to violate the law or to corrupt the morals of such persons. This made this criminal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and they've made—they've already made their decisions. You know, here we're having yes. a hearing. Like, do comics contribute to that? And the Canadians are saying yes, comics contribute yes. to that. We ban them.
1: Yeah. So now it's—it's it's a criminal violation to print, sell, or distribute a crime comic. And uh, in the uh, in the hubbub here, three publishers and one wholesale distributor were convicted. Um, now they, you know, we—I don't know how many comics companies there were in Canada. I mean, there were distributors, of course, but. Yeah. Uh, Since it couldn't be enforced in the U.S., uh, or at least on U.S.-based publishers like EC and whatnot, it's kind of toothless. But, uh, you know, they did come off the shelves in Canada, and when they did, they were replaced with love, sex, and girly mags. Hey, good job. This entire thing was just... (laughs) Oh, it, 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 <laughs> if this thing—if this thing had one ounce of credibility, it, it, it lost it here. it's, <laughs> it's I,
0: horrendous. I know. Come on, you know, butting up with a Canadian. Forget it. This is a U.S. of A, pal. I'm not. I'm not taking Damn it. it. That's what, uh, I found that one really hilarious um,
1: well, they, they didn't make him swear in
0: No <laughs> and, and so what, are the, what, what are you saying, so if a senator was on the stands You wouldn't make him, so like basically politicians Are exempt from swearing in They're above it uh, yep. yeah, they're, We know they're going to be uniquely truthful So there's no reason for them to do that uh, Samuel Black was next up He was the vice president of the Atlantic Coast Indi- Independent Distributors Association uh, He doesn't really have a position He doesn't like crime and horror But he doesn't really want a law banning them He says there are 16 national distributors, 950 wholesale distributors, 270 independent distributors, and 100,000 or more retailers. Uh, He also says there are no such things as tie-in sales. Distributors don't have the time, the manpower, interest to read every magazine they ship to appraise its moral value, and the returns are handled all the same uh, as unsold books. Nobody cares about the content at the distribution level. It's just best left for editorial. Which, you know, there was some truth, I, I bet, at the, uh, you know... Non- at his level. At his level, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're not reading all those. But I bet these 270 independent distributors had plenty of time to read the comics and, <laughs> uh, and probably own the presses printing them and probably were able to really, uh, you know, see yeah. what was going on. Um, he was upset to hear in Fulton's testimony a statement that a distributor was convicted. He claims distributors should be left out of this mess altogether. Mm-hmm. Which is true as long as they're not actually threatening and beating, beating up the retailers. Uh, <laughs> William A. Eichhorn was next up. He's the vice president of the American News Company. He gives a strange testimony. Uh, he, claims, he claims not to look at the content until someone complains about it. Uh, he, they don't hold themselves up as censors. Uh, they just wait for a case under obscenity statutes and then they deal with it. Uh, he mm-hmm. gives very nebulous answers about where their books are distributed. He doesn't really... Uh, get into specifics, but he does claim to ship to Canada. Yep. And uh, as soon as he says this, <laughs> he's booted. He's off the stand. Do do not contradict the great uh, Canadian, uh, honorable Ed Fulton. Uh, you know, what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I bet he got kicked out of the country. That's it. He was probably, he he probably shipped off to uh, you know their version of Guantanamo Bay or whatever. So next up, uh, J. Jerome Kaplan, the chairman of the Juvenile Delinquency Committee of the Union County Bar Association. He's a moral crusader. He hates anything that he thinks is indecent, uh, you know, so he was a perfect guy to put up at this time. Absolutely. He, he was trying to ban crime and horror comics in New Jersey, and uh, he was a part of assembly number 401, the state of New Jersey, in April 12th, 1954, and they uh, gave a supplement to chapter 170 of Title IIA of New Jersey statutes, a $25 fine to anyone selling or giving a crime or horror comic to anyone under the age of 16. Mm-hmm. So their legislation had been passed, and we heard about other legislation in Canada and Massachusetts. You know, people wanted the federal government to step in and do something about comic books. And uh, this concluded our uh, trial, mm-hmm. but it did not conclude, obviously, the research done by the Committee for to Look into juvenile delinquency, and uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to tell you all about the Senate interim report that came out the following year.
3: Two decades ago, my late father was instrumental in starting the comic magazine industry. He edited the first few issues of the first modern comic magazine, Famous Funnies. Famous what? Funnies. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too, and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to
1: robbery? Ah, welcome back. Now, we just finished up our break there, and now we're going to talk about the Senate Interim Report that was published in 1955.
0: Yeah, this is the, this is the results. This is the findings of the Senate uh, Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency
1: yes and it was penned by uh our man kefauver estes Kefau. I, I don't even know how to say his
0: first name either i think it's i think it's estes i don't know though i don't know it's like
1: estes, we... estes. testy one two three <laughs> uh part one of this uh report is the introduction just it's you know bare bones just gives scope to the endeavor it discusses the goals of the uh committee um part two is broken up into two parts uh Part two, A is a brief history of the development of the comic book industry. And
0: now this, go, th- this right here has to be the most comprehensive look at comic books to date. At that time, you know, I mean, yeah. he he goes back, he goes back to the beginning. <laughs> One day, we're actually going to do a podcast that's going to be <laughs> patterned partly on this timeline that he creates right here.
1: That's going to be fun. Uh, there's a, he goes all the way back to 1896 with the Yellow Kid. By uh, Richard Outcalt, that that kid always scared me. Yeah, well,
0: he, his, his, his face is just so creepy. Big ears, and you know, kind of a oh, big, big Irish teeth bug sticking on out. Him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes up to 1911, which is the first publication devoted to comics. And this is a uh, sh- this is from the Chicago American. It's a, a book of reprints or a pamphlet of reprints of Mutt and Jeff comics that people could get from uh, clipping coupons, I believe, in a grocery store in a circular. Yeah. And uh, he moves on to a 1935, which was the first present-day comic book, which is called Now Fun, and that was a 64-page four-color book. Mm-hmm. And then goes into uh, Action Comics number one in 1938. Uh, part two B, it's uh, more stats for uh, you know the modern, the contemporary at the time uh, market. Uh, he says that at present there's uh, 112 different comics publishers in the game. Most of them are based in New York City.
0: Wow. I mean, I mean you Imagine. see what I'm saying folks there were a lot of public a lot of comics out there a lot of yep. publishers
1: yep and uh, minimum print runs were 300,000 <laughs> 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 if your book wasn't selling over or selling Nia, Three hundred thousand. It Oops. wasn't worth. It, it
0: wasn't worth making. Yeah, it wasn't. wasn't worth <laughs> running the printer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now the uh, at this time the current newsstand count, uh, as we talked about briefly earlier, it's a between 95,000 and 110,000 nationwide. Mm-hmm. Part three, he discusses the nature of crime and horror comic books. He, st- he cites a, he cites a laundry list of specific examples, but uh, I think we're only going to talk about two of them here. Uh, one of the he cites is a story called Bottoms Up. That was uh, from Story Comics. And this is about an alcoholic husband who steals money from his wife to buy alcohol from bootleggers. Uh, the wife ultimately kills the husband with an axe and returns all the alcohol to the bootleggers. But instead of instead of uh, alcohol in the bottles, it's uh, full of her husband's body parts. So
0: it had a happy ending. I don't, I don't see what the problem is here.
1: It did. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus wept. <laughs> Uh, the next one uh, he cites is called uh, Frisco Mary by Ace Comics. That's odd. Um,
0: <laughs> hey, wait a second.
1: Yeah. Mary runs a gang, pops a, an already wounded cop full of lead. And, uh, you know, the list It goes on and on and on. It's just uh, different, you know, various levels of violence and gore that I, I don't really think we need to touch on. It's no. more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he also discussed the methods used to portray violence. Uh, although not in, not every panel de- portrays actual violence, they all depict a lead up to it. Is his argument? I mean, um, <laughs> use of yeah, use of supernatural phenomena in everyday life, all leading to fear and distrust. Not unlike horror. Yeah, you know, why would horror try to scare the reader? I
0: know. Come on.
1: <laughs> One of the things he cited was. Uh, I, I believe it was a story about someone's neighbor being a uh, Martian or an alien of some sort. Oh yeah, which uh, which he thought would make which would destroy the American neighborhood. <laughs> Little did he know that just people would do that.
0: Yeah, they, they, <laughs> you don't have to be an alien to destroy the
1: neighborhood. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, a portrayal of uh, supernatural beings, including vampires, werewolves, and zombies, and also uh, the language used. It uh, it uh, stimulates the reader reinforces a belief in the supernatural or monsters, and uh, describes impossible desires and describes killing.
0: All right. Then it goes on to part four, crime and horror comics as a contributing factor in juvenile delinquency. Uh, You know, the point of the entire investigation. (laughs) Um, So he says that crime and horror comic books in the hands of a well-adjusted child... Uh, these are the innocents that are being seduced by by Fre- that Frederick Wortham invoking a title. Gee, thanks. You know, like, oh, I didn't realize that. That's what you meant. Uh, <laughs> there's not a direct causation, but he says that a lot of uh, juvenile offenses can be attributed to comics. Kind of careful with their phrasing here. You know, uh, as we said last time, Frederick Wortham never says that comics cause crime. No, he's uh, very, very close to the vest. Exactly, yeah, you know, but but says that there are elements within comics that can uh, sort of in, awaken a latent criminal within a child. Uh, he mentions uh, Frederick Wortham's opponent, who Frederick M. Thrasher. Mm, frankly, what a name. Frankly, we probably should do, should have done a little uh, <laughs> podcast on him, but just for the name alone. Uh, he wrote The Comics and Delinquency, Cause or Scapegoat, for the Journal of Educational Sociology in December 1949, and uh, even way back then, he criticized Wertham's approach, citing its Yeah, this g- is
1: probably after, what is it, Comics, Very Funny or whatever? Very,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, the Comics, Very Funny, yeah, and, yeah. and we talked about how uh that i mean that was just in a I, I don't, that wasn't collier's but that was a, another something along those lines some weekly yeah. magazine and you know you don't expect a um you know journalistic footnote annotated yeah. research but <laughs> but he is just sort of off the cuff me that's the one with that whole long thing like i know a 13 year old girl with a chainsaw i know yeah. two, two <laughs> kids that shot a, a old man in the face with an automatic <laughs> The so he killed a nurse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, just like just like it's saying a bunch of horrifying things without any backup. So I think that's what uh, Frederick Thrasher was talking about here. Mm. Um, Keyfarber he does add a footnote stating that Workman's findings are not empirical. Mm. But at this point, he feels like a lawyer. T- you know, it's like a lawyer telling a jury that the defendant's a rapist and then saying, uh, "Strike that from the record." <laughs> you know, the, the cat's out of the bag. You know, whether yeah. whether his research was empirical or not. People are buying it is what into it, it. Is. yeah. And and uh, you know, you sort of see that a little bit today, don't you, Chris? <laughs> you you <laughs> don't necessarily need a whole lot of backup to uh, have no. something accepted as true, especially the internet age. But that's uh, you know uh, something t- true then as it is now. So, uh, He's also kind of preaching to the cro- choir, though. You know, bad books in the hands of bad kids. Well, it supports and sanctions their behavior. Uh, you know, and I have to say that there's, you know, if a kid has a proclivity to Violence or mischief, and you know, he he might take a a cue from something in a comic. I don't think it's that impossible. Uh, this is the psychological antisocial, not the more familiar, you know, just somebody that's sort of shy or doesn't like talking to people, though. This would be someone who was, you know, borderline or actually sociopathic. Uh, could be not, not unsocial, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, not not just sort of a a, uh, wallflower. We're talking about a messed up, a very messed up child. Um, So the techniques of crime that are learned from crime and horror comics, he said that uh, Kefauver said they were instructive in the technique and activity, as well as how to avoid detection. Uh, You know, if you Mm -hmm. learn all your techniques from a comic, you see how far that gets you all. Just let me know how that goes. Because I
1: know I can escape by going through the sewers, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Or, you know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, take my shoes off and and no one can hear me. Uh, it, It glamorized criminal careers. Um, vigilantes they claim to stand for justice and were above the law and they kill and commit crimes in defense of justice uh, this is obviously not what a law and order government wants to uh, have in the hands of children mm-hmm. the excessive reading of comics was symptomatic of an emotional pathology which is come on give me a break <laughs> you know it's like the you know the excessive anything could be considered yeah. an emotional pathology sure. uh, especially if it's something that you don't you know what I mean like you know, right now, the big thing is Pokemon Go. Now, sure. I don't care about Pokemon Go. You don't care about Pokemon nope. Go. But I certainly wouldn't consider anyone playing it to be pathological. You know, they're no. sort of, uh, you know, suckers. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the excessive reading is compared to alcoholism in that it is usually a symptom of some deeper emotional malady. And I wonder what Kefauver would say about the current <laughs> landscape of comics collecting. Which is more like alcoholism <laughs> than anything ever, you know, that this ever was. Except it's more expensive. It definitely way more expensive <laughs> and, and, de- and definitely something you keep way more secret from your wife. Absolutely.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even go to a meeting for that.
0: No, exactly. You know, you, you hide those receipts, everything is kept <laughs> far away. Uh, and then Kifo ever kind of hedges his bets by ending with the statement that more research is required, uh, which is, you know, sort of a cop out. Like, yeah. you know, no duh, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> Your example here is: "Tell me, sir, when did you stop beating your wife?" You know, sort of a leading, sort of leads you to a conclusion, but but never quite without making a statement. Exactly, definitively says anything.
1: (laughs) We go on to uh, part five: other questionable aspects of comic books. He starts out with the advertisements. And uh, the first one he talks about is weapons, which are the guns, knives, blades, crossbows, stuff like that. This one, I like the second part, the pseudo-medical nostrils. That's awesome. Oh, I love that word, though, that, that phrase there.
2: Um,
1: and he cites, you know, the pimple creams, the weight loss pills. Uh, the, a specific example he gives is the Kelpadine chewing gum and uh, the muscle-building uh, methods. Yep. And anything, basically anything not supported by the FDA.
0: And, and luckily um, after this there was never an advertisement for anything that ripped kids off in comics ever <laughs> again
1: <laughs> what, what about that flex mentalo guy oh
2: wait no oh, that <laughs> <Not did> you... <laughs> um
1: also uh, he had a problem with the misuse of mailing lists you know you can get your <laughs> you get your spam oh yeah uh, <laughs> i put here spam city population you um Exploitation of the crime in horror comics. Uh, he, this is, you know, taking them out of the country, and uh, he had uh, concerns for, you know, racial uh, sensitivity, um, <laughs> and then goes on to say that people in other countries have lower intellect.
0: That's <laughs> like okay, <laughs> but not Canada. He didn't mean Canada. Don't no, take no, it. Don't not take Canada. it personally. Canada, we love you. <laughs> What a messed no, up thing like, to say! Like, so, so xenophobic. Like,
1: yeah, it's like we can't ship these to Africa because it's racist and because they're
0: dumb. Oh, those they, won't, like, they won't understand the, the exactly. deep meaning.
1: They of don't these even comics. know we're making fun of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, uh, different ideals, uh, you know, different national outlooks. They're, you know, just different cultural looks. It's a yeah. uh, you know your basic international incident fear mongering. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: part six: Comic books is a medium for communication. Now this is great. <laughs> they they talk about how terrible and how dumb and how illiterate you are if you read comics. But here they argue that comics are written so well that they can actually communicate ideologies
0: and publicize lifestyles. Wow, comics are all things to all people. You
1: know? <laughs> and you know that really hasn't changed now it's you know especially with social media. We know Exactly where our fi- our favorite writers stand on politics, on diet, on what movie they want to see, and a lot of that makes its way into the comics. The, you know, whether it's a conscious decision or not.
0: I would say that we are in a in a period right now in comics here in 2016 when comics are hyper socially aware. But I, I mm-hmm. would say that prior to now, I think of a guy like Chuck Dixon, mm-hmm. uh, or even Frank Miller. You know what I mean? Like oh, these, yeah. these are these are very politically uh, conservative and uh, pretty vocal about it. Actually, Frank Miller's kind of become more conservative over time, but Chuck Dixon's—he's Dixon's,
1: blacklisted
0: now. he's—he's uh, he's basically blacklisted for his political ideas. But but you you really don't get that impression through his Robin comics, no. you know, which is a great run or yeah, nice. Same
1: with Bill Willingham.
0: Bill Willingham is exactly. I mean, it, you know, it it, go, it goes back to you know never meet your idols, you basically. know, be, when you when you meet them you'll find out they're not what they <laughs> pretended to be. But a good writer. Uh, or a good creator isn't going to bring those kind of politics to uh, their work all the time if it, it doesn't warrant it. You know, like I, I don't know offhand what John Burns' politics well, Like I do now, actually, but yeah. you know, back in the day, I, I didn't know what his politics were. way they weren't in the comic. It was just, you know, about what he believed, how he believed comics should be. So, uh, you know, I disagree with Keith Faber what he's saying here. Although uh, he, he's saying that it could happen. And therefore, you know, anything can happen. He says
1: that's so broad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I can, I can jump 15 feet in the air.
0: Yeah,
2: it
1: Could happen. <laughs> um, part seven. Now, this is the uh, the real uh, gist here. Uh, where should responsibility for policing crime and horror comics rest? And they offer up uh, different different bodies that could do this uh, this policing. Yeah. Um, See here, comic books and authority. The subcommittee, the subcommittee, flatly rejects suggestions of government censorship. <laughs> uh, maybe. He also cites the Canadian ban on uh, the crime and horror comics, and uh, instead of uh, doing away, or instead of intervening for censorship reasons, they prefer. To, this guy prefers to do away with the uh, the will they, won't they, are they, aren't they tie-in sale phenomenon. Yeah. Which you know. Uh, like we said, it, it's certainly happening some places, maybe most places. Um, so, you know, it, it is a thing. Uh, the next one, responsibility of parents and citizen groups. I don't know why they're lumped together. Yeah, really? <laughs> you know, they, they report... The report places higher emphasis on these concerned citizen brigades than uh, rather than you know the people that the kids actually live with.
0: Yeah, really. Uh, I, I don't,
1: I don't, I don't really give into the it takes a village mentality. I don't want my neighbor raising my kid.
0: Oh, especially when um, it comes to this, you know what I mean? Like you know, yes. I'll, I'll tell you something. If my neighbor comes to ask me if their kid can read a horror comic, I'm gonna say sure. I don't care. <laughs> you know what do I care? <laughs> can I read it? Go ahead. Yeah, if I could have it after him, that'd be fine. <laughs>
1: The uh, Child Child Study Association as an evaluator. Now, this is uh, the Child Study Association. They they, could, they educated parents on on all methods of all manner of things. Uh, be it the, the Saturday movies, the you know books, novels, and comics. Yeah, and then they uh, they also doing,
0: we had a representative on the first day of the hearings. Right, he who showed up. Yes, there. I yeah. believe so. Yeah,
1: and uh, they've been doing this since 1948, at least on comics. Now the uh, the subcommittee has some findings, and, they, and this is like uh, you know if you if you've ever been a supervisor at work, you know that you start off with the good, yeah. <laughs> and then you yeah I yeah, know uh, you kind of get worse as you go along. Yeah, uh, they they start off with saying the CSA uh, is to be commended for including comic books in their evaluation activities, uh, and then they go on to say there's no reason to criticize a publisher for employing qualified consultants. Uh, association statements may not be adi- they may not adequately reflect the product or industry So,
0: <laughs> what is <laughs> the it's, point you know, of it then
1: <laughs> yes that escalated quickly. <laughs> and uh, then they hint that there may be some cloudy judgment from the CSA in regard to the publishers that may give them some funding
2: mm-hmm. so
1: they can be bought uh, which you know this is this is This is a Senate This is a federal document I know (laughs) And it's like They never heard a libel Or anything like
0: that Uh, They they, may be crooked uh, You know As a stick on the ground Yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> they, I'm not saying they're communists. Uh, <laughs> and he also goes, he he closes up with uh, questioning the ethical practices of the CSA. Uh, he says that they're not impartial, they're not objective. They cannot be trusted with this hefty responsibility.
0: So the, the next idea is, so who would be very impartial and objective? Oh, self-regulation of the comics industry. Uh, <laughs> they did have their chance, though, years back, they... They attempt to shift all responsibility to parents uh, that are unjustified. You know, they had that, what I was talking about, they had that comics code in 48 that uh, people just kind of left, they yeah, they didn't stick with. That was talked about, I think, in the second day of testimony. Uh, so the, their attempts to shift the responsibility to parents were unjustified. Uh, claims of the absolute right of an industry to produce what it pleases inst- unless it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt that such a product is damaging to children is unjustified. Uh, and uh, maybe the news dealers should have some, some responsibility here. Yeah. Uh, they don't—they don't really have the time to appraise all the books that they sell. And didn't you know? We heard that one before from the distributors at, at their level. It didn't really uh, sway the committee then either. You know, you kind of gotta—you know—there is a little bit of let let the buyer beware, but you should be aware of what you're peddling also. Uh, maybe at the wholesale level. Well, wholesalers only see a carton and a shipping label. They don't actually necessarily look at the comic book, which is true. I think, I think sure. that's, that's fair enough. Uh, even goes back to the printer. Um, <laughs> and comics publishers, they may use several printers to complete one book. Uh, that seems unlikely, meaning that I don't think you would send, you know, you couldn't. Pages re- one and three.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
0: But but you definitely could have, and and this happens. Say like I say, I, I work uh, in print in the print industry. There are printers that won't print uh, books or magazines with nudity at all, even like sure. t- tasteful nudity. Whereas there are printers that will print whatever the hell you want. Obviously, so <laughs> it's it's a matter. I mean, I, I know that you know I don't work in pornography or magazines, but I, I've <laughs> had the opportunity to publish, for example, fine art books, and <laughs> some publishers won't handle them because they've got you know the the naked Venus or whatever. Sure. Uh, or even you know a picture of the statue of David so that that happens today there's always a work around printers someone will do it believe me the the the, the money money talks, bullshit walks is the uh, yeah. thing here believe me whatever you, <laughs> if you want to print you know Nazi pamphlets you want to print whatever you want there's someone out there that will take that work happily uh, they're not totally absolved therefore because they can decline the work but at the same time, you're basically telling them to, you know, make less money, which is not... Hey, don't eat today. Yeah, not very American. Uh, maybe hmm. at, at the distributor, at the distribu- distribution level, the distributor should uh, step in to curtail some of these comics. There are 13 national distributors, and they should guard against distributing reading materials to children that are detrimental to their welfare, but again, it's not really totally clear what materials no. those would be. Uh, and they should supervise the publications they distribute, I suppose... At the publisher level. Well, you know, actually happens today through the direct market, although it it usually isn't to stop uh, gore and sex, but to increase it. (laughs) Because these guys are trying to sell maximum amount of comics. And perhaps maybe the publisher should take some responsibility here, was was one of the clever ideas of this committee. And, uh, yeah, I think that probably, you know, if, if anyone is going to be responsible... The person producing it, the person putting their money and name on the line. Go figure. These are these are the people <laughs> that really probably should be involved. Uh, Absolutely. He does mention the past attempt at self-regulation that on July 1st, 1948, the Association of Comics Magazine Publishers was established in New York City. Uh, they had a six-point code of editorial practice that we discussed earlier that I think was day two, like I said. Yeah. Uh, but they really didn't have a lot of unity, um, and people just walked away. And by 1950, there was a non-entity. There was nothing really happening there. So the current efforts at self-regulation, this would have been in, in, by March 1955. There was a new association. There was the adoption of a new code, uh, the appointment of a code administrator. And this was self-regulation in accordance with suggestions made by a committee. No censorship, except now. Well, uh, it's committee censorship, you see what it is? Yes. We call that democratic censorship. It's not just just a morals czar or something. Uh, And this is a quote, The subcommittee intends to watch with great interest the activities of this association and will report at a later date on this effort by the comic book industry to eliminate questionable comic books. Uh, I have a feeling that report was they done it, as we will get into, uh, <laughs> Next, <yep. laughs> but, but that, that was, uh, you know, still early on in the Comics Code Authority's life.
1: Now, part eight of, the, uh, of this report is the conclusions. They say that uh, in childhood, the rights and wrongs are established in reaction to society standards, which include mass media, comics, and education. They uh, required a policy to code, there was a policy code required to avoid demoralizing the youth, and uh, they call for vigilance by parents, publishers, and citizen groups.
0: Who are these man. citizen groups? Uh, I do, don't know. Do we still have them today? I, I don't. I don't. I don't know any citizen groups. I guess. Might have to Scouts? look out my window
1: see if anybody's watching. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and uh, at this point, the Senate hearings are considered resolved.
0: Oh, oh! I think I hear the citizens' groups uh, behind you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a dog. Yeah, calm down, man.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, the, these hearings, uh, you know, we, as we covered, the hearings took place in the spring and early summer of 1954. This interim report was not published until March of 19. 55, so you, it took them almost a year, yeah. or about a year, to write this. Yeah, which... but,
0: but something happened that summer that really gave a lot of weight to this report and this yes. investigation.
1: And we touched on these fellas briefly last week. These are the Brooklyn Thrill Killers, and these are uh, the four Jewish neo-Nazi youths. Um,
0: unbelievable, I, like, wow. You
1: can't even write that.
0: How? <laughs> right out of a comic book, I right there.
1: Yes, uh, they killed two men. They tortured others uh, over the summer in 1954. They had a, their little rampage in South Brooklyn there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the fellas' names were Robert Trachtenberg, Melvin Mittman, Jerome Lieberman, and Jack Koslow. You can't make that up either. I
0: know. Melvin <laughs> Mittman. That's like, did, Mel- did Bill Gaines make that name? I, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: Now, uh, Coslow, at the time, he was the only one whose name was released to the press because he was 18. The, 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 other, the, the age range was 15 to 18. Yeah. And uh, Coslow was quoted as saying, there's some guy, a psychiatrist, who keeps saying that they, meaning horror comics, have a bad effect on kids. I read about it on Reader's Digest and read his digest, listen, I could tell that guy something.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I, we don't know how much of this was just to maybe stir the pot a little bit or just to get themselves off the hook. Uh, he was uh, said to have bought a cloak and a, a some weapon. I don't remember what it was, though. But uh, the, all there, all the weapons that they used to torture these people, they bought from ads and comics. Yep. And uh, we don't know if maybe this was giving Koslo the opportunity to emulate his idol, Adolf Hitler. himself was a notorious censor and book burner that's true
0: this is the opportunity to to do exactly what the uh third reich had uh tried had done and tried to do Mm -hmm. in perpetuity uh you know as far as this point of you know whether whether he was i i I tend to think that a guy like Koslow was just extending his his minute yeah exactly you know what i mean he (laughs) He had his time to screw with them, and he, he took it, you know, yeah, sure, it was comic books, what, darn it, chi, you know what I mean? Like, obviously a very <laughs> messed up individual and put some pretty messed up kids. Uh, I bet you there's a lot more about these people that would uh, bring the picture into sharper focus as to why they did sure. this. But, you know, essentially this this thing happening, I think, right at, right at this summer, right after the hearings... It was like, okay, that's it. Comics are evil. You know what I mean? Yeah, got to legitimize the entire now. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's kids are starting to become uh, vicious serial killers. So we got to do something <laughs> and do something. They did, Chris.
1: Yes, they started the Comics Code Authority, which we will go real, real deep into
0: next time. Yep. Finally, folks, after three episodes, <laughs> we are finally getting to. The very thing we <laughs> intended to talk about at the beginning—the Comics Code Authority, uh, how that affected comics, how that shaped comics uh, for many, many years to follow—and uh, too many, too many for sure. Um, you know, we, we have a lot to say about it. And we're going to get into it, and then, and then after that, we're going to talk about uh, the more recent times, po- post 2011, mm-hmm. and even in the most of the 21st century, which has been sort of a post-comics code time. Yeah. But for now, we're going to leave it there. And if you want to write to us and tell us uh, how much you love or hate us and what we got wrong, then please write to us at weirdsciencedccomics at Uh, gmail.com. Want to say that again? I got it right this time, folks. Weirdsciencedccomics at gmail.com. I've been getting it wrong the last two weeks, but... uh, those of you who listen to the regular podcast, Weird Science DC Comics podcast, um, they know that you know Jim. Jim will read all these letters, and uh, sure. it really pisses them off when you say that you like us. So make sure you write that to him. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie. Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, I'll tell you every week. You know, I'll say it. Got to be real brief this time, but uh, <laughs> you got to check out every single day. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.blogspot.com. Chris does a review of a DC comic every day. It's very funny, very in-depth, very witty. It shows ads at the end. So it's the uh, best classic comics review blog on the Internet today, folks, so you got to check it out. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I always butter him up at the end because I know that I've just made him talk for t- two straight hours. So, uh, really enjoyed talking about this, Chris. Do you have anything else for the people?
1: Oh, this was a this was a blast to uh, to research. Uh, w- you know, we do have some links that we could probably throw in the notes if anybody actually wants to read the 300-page transcription of this thing.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think we will include uh, some some links.
1: Yeah, a lot of it's very dry, and you can see that. That's why we left some of it out. But uh, I think we got the real uh, the real gist of it.
0: And also, you got to give you know, Chris did the bulk of the research on this. I was really pressed for time, and uh, he did a lot of the nitty gritty getting into the transcripts (laughs) so everyone uh, should be standing up in their car or (laughs) office or wherever you are and give him a round of applause because he's done a great job but uh, until next week this has been Weird Comics History and we want you to keep it weird historically Wild,
2: wild wild young (laughs) men like to have a good time Wild, wild young (laughs) men like to have a good time
1: Wild men dig me, but I love a cool one. Wild men dig me, but I love a cool one. To go home to when I've had my fun.